Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm uh, Vice President for Research here at Cato, and it's my pleasure to be moderating today a uh, book forum for Glenn Reynolds' new book, An Army of Davids, How Markets and Technology Empower Ordinary People to Beat Big Media, Big Government, and Other Goliaths. And there are books available for sale and probably uh, for signing, if you're nice, uh, uh, so that uh, after uh, the forum here, when we uh, regroup for lunch upstairs, uh, you can corner Glenn, and I'm sure he'll be happy to, uh, to, uh, to sign your copy. Have a seat there, Henry. Um, if uh, I would assume most of you are here and know uh, who Glenn Reynolds is by his uh, uh, nom de web uh, instapundit, um, one of the most popular political web blogs in the world. Uh, I remember very clearly uh, the first time I read Instapundit.com. It's a day that was impossible to forget. It was September 11th, 2001. Uh, after taking a couple of hours to get through the uh, chaotic traffic back home and then spending another few hours in front of the TV watching this sickening and numbing repetition of these horrible images, I wanted to go online and hear what people were saying about this momentous and horrible event. And already a couple of people I knew, uh, like uh, people like Andrew Sullivan and Virginia Postrel, had uh, personal websites that were being updated in diary-like fashion, although back then uh, people were calling them me-zines uh, instead of uh, weblogs or blogs. Uh, and Virginia's site had a link to Glenn's, and uh, uh, I read it, and it was uh, uh, and, uh, being updated constantly with new material. And... Uh, I was hooked, and Glenn hasn't slowed, slowed down since, uh, and neither has uh, uh, the whole blogging phenomenon. Uh, Glenn's site now gets, I, I'm sure, 100,000-plus uh, 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 visits on a daily basis, uh, and sometimes considerably more than that. Um, and it turns out that my story about being introduced to Instapunnet was uh, completely typical. I'm reading here from Glenn's book. Uh, by September 10th, I had 1,600 readers a day and thought I'd hit the big time. The next day on September 11th, I had nearly triple that, and it just took off from there, although the events responsible for that growth took away a bit of the savor. Lots of other people started blogging shortly thereafter, and you often heard the same reasons given, basically variations on, I got tired of watching the video of the towers collapsing, and I got tired of yelling at the TV. Like me, people were unhappy with the mass market journalistic product and wanted to try to make something of their own. Since then, blogging has exploded in popularity. As I write this, uh, Technorati.com is tracking over 22 million blogs. Uh, well, I checked Technorati this morning, and now they're checking 29.8 million uh, uh, blogs. So uh, the, uh, the growth continues. Uh, blogging has enjoyed this exponential growth over the past few years because it's an immensely attractive phenomenon. It empowers people, and it brings them together. Uh, just as web technology uh, has allowed companies like Amazon or eBay uh, to bring buyers and sellers together. Web technology in the form of blogging uh, brings the informed, the opinionated, and the articulate uh, together uh, with the, the interested and the curious uh, in a never-ending, spontaneous, uh, sometimes brawling uh, conversation. The old constraints uh, on political commentary, and it's the political side of the blogosphere that uh, we're primarily interested in today, uh, the, the the old constraints on political commentary, namely, uh, first of all, the extremely limited space uh, on the pages of uh, major newspapers, uh, op-ed pages, and in the major political magazines, uh, and the voice of impersonal oracular authority that is assumed uh, by people with access to that space, those constraints have been blown away uh, by the blogging phenomenon. And now I uh, think uh, we are happy to enjoy a much more inclusive, much more open, much more boisterous, uh, but ultimately much more democratic space uh, for hashing through issues of the day, an army of Davids indeed. Uh, Glenn's book, however, is uh, much more than a take simply uh, on the blogging phenomenon that has brought him to public prominence. Uh, Glenn's argument is that blogging is just one data point uh, of a larger trend, uh, namely a trend in which technological developments are putting more and more power in the hands of more and more people and empowering outsiders uh, to challenge the status quo uh, in one area after another. And it turns out that Glenn's qualifications for writing on this broader theme uh, go well beyond uh, his status as super blogger. 
uh, when he's not uh, putting all of us to shame uh, with his ridiculously prolific output as a law professor and uh, a book author and uh, a blogger and a columnist. Uh, he's also uh, home brewing his own beer, uh, doing his own music recording. Uh, the guy's a, a one-man army of Davids. Uh, meanwhile, uh, when it comes to the technologies just around the corner that he writes about uh, in the second half of this book, uh, he knows whereof he speaks. Uh, Glenn served as, serves currently as uh, uh, one of the directors of the Foresight Nanotech Institute, which is an organization uh, dedicated to exploring the benefits and risks of nanotechnology. Uh, he's also written a book on space law and served on the White House Advisory Panel on Space Policy. I had the pleasure of reading Glenn's book over the weekend, and I can say it's a highly entertaining tour of the technological cutting edge and uh, the near future uh, and the social implications, uh, the happier social implications of, uh, of, uh, of technological uh, frontier. I have to say that his argument uh, that technological progress equals empowerment for ordinary people is a lot more obvious when it comes to the present day, when it comes to the developments uh, in microelectronics and information technology, uh, than, it, uh, than it is with respect to biotech or nanotech or space. Uh, we really don't have a good handle, I think, uh, on the social and political implications of technological developments in these areas. It's certainly conceivable that nanotech and biotech could push things in a libertarian direction, favoring uh, David's uh, over Goliath but I'm not sure the case is proven by any means. Uh, and on that score, I look forward to a dose of friendly skepticism uh, regarding Glenn's thesis from our commenter today, Henry Farrell. Uh, Henry also is a blogger uh, contributing to the popular site uh, crookedtimber.org, uh, whose generally left-of-center perspective uh, differs clearly and sometimes sharply uh, from Glenn's uh, libertarianism. Uh, Henry is a political science professor uh, at the 26-in-1 George Washington University, and for those of you who uh, didn't see the end of the game on Saturday, uh, you missed a doozy. Uh, where, among other things, he uh, teaches uh, courses on the politics of the Internet and the Internet and international relations. And uh, along with Daniel Dresner, another academic blogger currently at the University of Chicago, uh, Henry co-wrote a much-talked-about article in Foreign Policy on the political influence of weblogs, as well as an academic paper on the subject. Uh, so I think we are uh, in... Uh, store for uh, we have in store for us uh, an exciting and interesting and stimulating conversation. We'll lead off uh, with Glenn, uh, and then uh, Henry will uh, give his two cents, and then we'll open it up for your questions and answers. So, uh, Glenn Reynolds, the Beauchamp Brogan uh, Distinguished Professor of Law, graduate uh, uh, undergraduate uh, degree uh, received from the University of Tennessee, law degree from Yale University, uh, author of Instapundit.com, and author of Army of Davids. Please welcome uh, Glenn Reynolds. It's always a little troubling to get up and talk about a book to people who probably haven't read it, and, and I also feel that I have to, in all honesty, tell you that you might be better off waiting till May and reading a science fiction novel by Werner Vengi called Rainbow's End. And the reason is it's set in the year 2025 in what's pretty much an army of David's world. The first two paragraphs have a new epidemic being spotted by public health hobbyists who collaborate on the Internet and use uh, data available from the government. Uh, and, it, it, and he paints the world pretty well in terms of individual empowerment and its up and downsides. Uh, but alas, uh, you may not want to wait till May, and I suppose I have a, a strong self-interest in seeing you purchase my book now and waiting for his later. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, I am an optimist, but as I say in the book, that is by temperament and by choice. It does not guarantee that I am right. But let me back up and uh, start uh, at the beginning. Everything starts with beer. Uh, well, that's almost literally true. There, there is a respectable theory that civilization started with beer, or at least agriculture did. Uh, people discovered that if you sowed grain, wild grain in places, it would tend to come back the next year, and then they figured out how to make beer out of it, and then they decided they should hang around and have a steady supply of beer. And What, you think people invented agriculture for bread? Um, so, so really, in a way, it all does go back to beer, but uh, in, in a more narrow way. Uh, the metaphor that I think goes through a lot of the discussion in the book is beer, and it goes back to my own experience. Uh, there was a time when the U.S. had a pretty thriving beer industry, and you could get different kinds of beer in different towns, and they had lots of different breweries. A lot of the taverns brewed their own beer, 
and it was, I imagine, pretty good. It was before my time. Uh, beer gradually became industrialized and consolidated. Uh, we've got to a relatively small number of big brewing companies producing kind of an industrial product. And the technology let them produce mass quantities of beer very predictably and very cheaply. Uh, more predictably than those small breweries and much more cheaply as well. And for a while, that was what you got. It used to be you'd go into restaurants and ask them what kind of beer they had, and they'd say, we have everything. Bud, Bud Light, Miller, Miller Light, Coors, Coors Light. What more do you want? Um, and then they do these blind taste tests where people couldn't actually tell them apart. Uh, and uh, that was sort of the norm. And there were economic reasons for it. But one of the things that happened was they gradually cut the quality just a little bit at a time to save money. And people suddenly woke up one day, and I did, said, you know, this stuff's just not that good. Uh, and people wanted something better. And the whole home brewing hobby, there had always been home brewers. My grandfather was a home brewer during Prohibition. And uh, people said he was a good home brewer. He said that during Prohibition, any brew was good brew. So, uh, but, uh, but it became a, a growing hobby and, and it, with a lot of people involved. And I was one of the brewers. I brewed beer. Sometimes it was good. Some of the beer I made was some of the best beer I ever had. Some was some of the worst. Um, gradually, I got better, and it was different. And what's interesting is the beer companies noticed and they realized that they had a mass of people out there who were interested in different kinds of beer and higher quality beers and would pay more for it. Uh, because when you brew your own beer, you can fool yourself that it's cheap as long as you don't assign any value to your time. Uh, but in fact, if you do, it's always cheaper to buy it at the store. Uh, and the beer companies actually learned from this and started producing or importing a wider variety of beers. Uh, and beer is now better as a result. Uh, but the homebrewing was still fun. And that's the other reason why people did it. It wasn't just to get the product. It was because they enjoyed the process. Well, I have a lot of hobbies because, I don't know, I just do. Um, I, I'm, I'm a, a dilettante, I guess. Uh, I started making music. I mean, I actually done music all along. But I started uh, recording, put a recording studio in the basement. I had a band. We made CDs. Uh, and the technology got easier and easier. And by the turn of the millennium, thanks to mp3.com and the Internet, you could record stuff on your computer and upload the files, and people could download them, and they could order CDs that would be burned one at a time uh, as they were ordered on a just-in-time basis, and that seemed pretty cool. Uh, and I started to notice this phenomenon happening all over the place. Uh, lots of stuff that used to take a big organization to do it. Lots of stuff where the technology and the economics of doing it favored big organizations. Uh, the minimum efficient scale was pretty big. And the economies of scale continued to rise. Uh, that, that, that that was changing, and that lots of things that used to be thought of as the province of big organizations were things that you could do at home. Now, that's nothing new. That was the trend. Well, the tendency of small-scale stuff being as efficient as large-scale stuff, and maybe more. So it was actually the norm for most of human history. Uh, if you were in the early Iron Age and you were a blacksmith, you didn't become more efficient by getting five or six blacksmiths together. Uh, you could do big things in the era of the Roman Empire, uh, but you didn't really do them more efficiently by doing them on a large scale for the most part. Uh, it was with the invention of uh, mechanical power, steam engines, the division of labor and such that big organizations could break tasks up into small parts, could expand them into a larger scale, could take advantage of sources of power that frequently had a pretty big minimum efficient scale themselves. A water wheel, a steam engine, uh, you weren't going to use that just to power a home sewing machine. So it really uh, led to a period of roughly 200 years where people actually started to take it for granted that anything important or major was probably going to be done by a big organization. And uh, one of the suggestions I make in the book is that that, in fact, was a historical anomaly, wedded to a particular phase of technology and, and to some degree social organization, uh, rather than, as I think people thought of it for most of that time, a trend that would extend forever into the future. Uh, in the world we see today, the efficiencies that adhere to big organizations are vanishing if they have not already vanished in areas that have to do with bits. This is why most of the examples I give from the uh, immediate world have to do with things like the internet, with blogs, with music, uh, with print-on-demand book publishing even to some degree, uh, with internet video and that sort of thing. 
somebody who I interviewed for this book, actually, Ali Partovi, who's the CEO of GarageBand.com, said, I really blew it. He said, I should have had a chapter on porn. That's really a place where the Internet and new technology are empowering individuals and small people to do what it used to take a large organization to do. Uh, I sort of smacked my head, but it was too late to add that chapter, and perhaps it's just as well. Um, but that's, that's bits, and that's where computer technology and electronics have brought us today. Uh, there is a possibility, and I think many people think a likelihood, that we're going to see similar phenomena applied to atoms. And in fact, Neil Gershenfeld, who felicitously enough heads the Center for Bits and Atoms at MIT, uh, is working on something he calls personal fabrication, which is in essence a move to give us the kind of control over matter that computers have given us over information. And computers have given us a lot of control over information. Uh, one little example from a book on nanotechnology. When your word processor boots, the calculations it performs between when you start Microsoft Word or WordPerfect and when it appears on the screen would take 2,000 man years of pencil and paper calculation. Uh, so we have really colossal powers uh, in the area of information that we totally take for granted. Um, there is a likelihood, I would say, that we're going to see similar capabilities with regard to matter. Gershenfeld is working on what he calls personal fabrication. He actually has a book out called Fab, which is about that and not about the Beatles, uh, and about what he calls personal manufacturing. Uh, that's still a work in progress, although you are already seeing signs of it. There's a place called emachineshops.com that lets you upload your designs from your CAD program, and they will then FedEx you whatever you've designed, and you can see if what you designed was actually what you wanted or not. Uh, but this is actually very useful for rapid prototyping and just for fun. Um, more advanced technologies like nanotechnology are likely to increase the potential of that substantially. Uh, allowing us to actually put things together atom by atom and to have really the kind of control over atoms that we have uh, over bits with computers now. How fast that will happen is a matter for some speculation uh, and depends a lot on who you ask. Uh, but there are actually nano products beginning to appear. Uh, and in fact, I went to a meeting of the EPA Science Board a couple of years ago and uh, even as someone who follows it was quite surprised at how many actual applications of nanotechnology are already appearing, although at the point they're still fairly primitive. Well, the result of all this is that already in the area of information, you see individuals having the kinds of powers that are normally associated with large organizations and nation states just a few decades ago. Um, in the future, we may see the same kinds of powers uh, relating to matter. And in fact, I mentioned uh, computers, I mentioned nanotechnology, I should mention biotechnology. And some of you may have seen uh, Paul Bouton's article about uh, deciding as somebody who knew nothing about it that he was going to synthesize a, an organism uh, with genetic engineering done by him, and it took him a few weeks. It was a test run to see if he could manufacture smallpox on his own using a protein synthesizer. He made something harmless but alive. It glowed. And uh, uh, so I think in, in the biological area we are getting uh, close already to that degree of control over matter uh, as a routine thing, uh, which should perhaps trouble us. Uh, but Empowering individuals is part of it, and that's why I got this title, An Army of Davids. I thought about David, and of course David had two things going for him. One was he had God on his side, and that's a big help, especially in the Old Testament. It really does you a lot more good there. Um, but he also had a technological advantage. Goliath was big and strong, uh, but he couldn't get close enough to do any harm to David because David whacked him in the head uh, with a stone from a sling. Uh, the sling is the technological advantage, and David is an empowered individual, uh, but what I've noticed on the web is it's not just a bunch of empowered individuals. Uh, you may recall the sort of 90s argument that we were all going to be these atomized individuals on the web, but my experience has been that people actually tend to sort themselves together and collaborate uh, and uh, organize spontaneously, uh, as a matter of fact. And we've seen that in a number of areas, uh, both in covering and in supporting relief for the Indian Ocean tsunami, uh, likewise with Katrina, likewise with various political issues like Rathergate and so on. Uh, that's a phenomenon which I call in the book horizontal knowledge, uh, which is the ability of people to identify other folks interested in working on what they're working on and to uh, cooperate on the fly uh, without some central authority telling them what to do. And you see that demonstrated a lot. A couple of recent examples, uh, some people got together and cracked some of the German Enigma codes left over from World War II that the Allies hadn't been able to crack. 
You also see SETI at home, which uh, is a way people cooperate to crack, uh, well, to, to try to find extraterrestrial messages. There's also a project which is not named AIDS at Home, which does, which would be bad marketing, uh, which does uh, similar work on the AIDS genome. Um, my prediction from all of this uh, is that the world is going to be a very different place as the empowerment of individuals that we've seen in the uh, world of data uh, extends to the physical world. Uh, I hope it's going to be a better place. Uh, it's going to be a place in which individuals and small groups will wield a colossal amount of power. And one of my concerns is that the world looks like a pretty small place when it's occupied by people who can wield so much power uh, in small groups or as individuals. And that, in fact, is a theme of the uh, novel Rainbow's End that I mentioned. He says it's a red queen's race with destruction as the ability to destroy the planet devolves downward from nations to large criminal gangs to small groups of wackos to individuals having a bad hair day, uh, which poses a variety of problems for everyone else. Uh, I predict neither an earthly paradise nor an earthly hell from all of this, uh, but I do think that we're going to see a world that at some large scale looks a little bit more like the 18th century than the 20th. Uh, in some sense, you already see that in the uh, area of blogs and journalism. You see the uh, reappearance of pamphleteers, of small journals, of correspondents who are actually people who correspond uh, as opposed to people with good hair and a microphone. Um, you are seeing more and more cottage industry uh, which things like the internet and other technologies make possible, and more and more working at home. I actually sat on the airplane coming up here this morning with a woman from Knoxville uh, who uh, does the marketing for a $40 million company that she owns a piece of, and she works out of her home three weeks a month and comes up here to her office once a month uh, and is able to work that way. And there are a lot of people like that. Uh, and indeed, you see with this the line between work and play blurring. Uh, all this doesn't mean the end of big organizations, and that's probably too bad. I should have probably done the Paul Ehrlich doomsaying thing, you know, and, and uh, called, called the end of everything big. Uh, I don't predict anything like that at all. Uh, but I do think that if you want sort of an example of, of the uh, change, you might contrast Walmart and eBay. Walmart's very, very good at what it does, but it's a very traditionally top-down organization in most regards. Um, eBay is big, and in fact, uh, according to some recent numbers that came out, uh, a substantial number of people, uh, a substantial fraction of the number of people who work at Walmart uh, make their living off of eBay. I think it's 744,000 people with eBay and 1.1 million at Walmart, if I remember correctly. Uh, these people are doing their own thing. Uh, they are small businesses, mostly, people selling things and buying things and making money off the difference between the two. Uh, eBay is big, but it's big in a very different way than Walmart is. It's big in a way that lets little guys do their own thing uh, and helps everybody make money. And that, I think, is a good model for the future and perhaps a model for uh, rethinking the role of government as well. Downsides? Well, the earliest groups, in some sense, of empowered individuals with regard to modern technology are terrorists. Uh, in the days when to kill people you had to swing a sword, uh, one person couldn't be that much of a threat. Uh, now that you have explosives and potentially nuclear weapons and anthrax and smallpox and the like, uh, well, they're pretty empowered. Uh, and I, I add that just to illustrate that I don't think that uh, the picture is universally sunny. Uh, it is my hope and belief, but the two are very intertwined, uh, that most people are basically good and that most people, when empowered, will generally act well, and that we'll figure out ways to deal with the people who are otherwise. Uh, but that's my take, and I suspect Henry's going to have a different one. Thank you very much. Our commenter uh, today is Henry Farrell, uh, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. Uh, he received uh, his uh, bachelor and master's degrees uh, from University College Dublin and also a master's degree and PhD uh, from uh, Georgetown University. And he is co-founder and author on uh, crookedtimber.org, ladies and gentlemen, Henry Farrell. Well, 
When I started to read Glenn's book, well, I took a look first at the uh, title. It's An Army of Davids, How Markets and Technology Empower Ordinary People to Beat Big Media, Big Government, and Other Goliaths. But I found as I was reading the book that this didn't quite describe what the book was about to me. It seemed to me that the people who Glenn was describing weren't necessarily ordinary people, at least for the kind of senses that I use for ordinary people. And one clue to this, I think, um, Glenn has mentioned a few times in his talk today, and he also devotes an entire chapter of his book to Werner Vinge's idea of the singularity. This idea that we're going to have this um, new world, that technology is accelerating to such a point that uh, we're about to reach a point of no return, where possibly we're all going to upload to computers, we're going to become post-humans, whatever, all of these wonderful, miraculous things that we're not able to predict in advance. Now, Cory Doctorow and Charlie Strauss have memorably described the singularity as being the rapture of the nerds. And it seems to me, in some ways, if Glenn's book, it's not the rapture of the nerds, but it's a kind of a, a prophecy of the nerds, it seemed to me. It seemed to me to be maybe some sort of a uh, newly discovered codicil to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the geeks, for they shall inherit the earth. Because if you read the book, it's not really about ordinary uh, individuals as such. It's about people like Glenn. It's about people who are dilettantes, people who are um, sort of building their own crossbows, brewing their own home brew, home studios, launching rockets, uh, toting AK-47s. Uh, generally, you know, sort of people who are um, sort of who are geek geeky people with lots of very highly developed geeky interests. Now. I say this, and I come at this as a geek myself. I bow to nobody. I bow to nobody in my ability to, to discuss the finer points of obscure science fiction novels. And during my teenage years, I had perhaps a greater familiarity with 20-sided dice than it was compatible with a wonderful social life. But not only that, I think that Glenn is actually, he's empirically right. And I think that there's evidence to back this up. If you look at the people, and this is what I study. I study blogs. This is one of my big areas of research. If you study blogs, you're going to see that the, uh, that the majority of the people who blog are, in a certain sense, they're not representative of the ordinary population. They are, by and large, they're white, they're male, they're upper, upper middle class, they have advanced degrees, and I would imagine they probably have extensive libraries of science fiction. We don't have any uh, research on this, but we do have research from uh, Laura McKenna and Tony Pohl, which suggests not only that top bloggers like Glenn, but that people down the uh, hierarchy some, to some extent also share this. They also share this set of social characteristics. Now, what does this suggest to me? It suggests that in a certain sense, the army of Davids that Glenn describes aren't necessarily ordinary people in the sense of being people who are representative of the American population. Instead, they're representative of a certain subset of that population, people who generally have uh, more resources, who have a certain degree of uh, skills, a certain degree of advanced expertise, expert knowledge that perhaps the uh, majority of the population does not. And for these people, I think, the technological revolution has been incredible. That said, I think that there are some real problems, and here comes to my uh, disagreements with Glenn books, Glenn's book, there are some real problems with the geek's eye view of the world if it's taken too far. And I think that there are some very interesting blind spots in Glenn's book as a result. To take one example, his discussion of, uh, of the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Now, this comes in a chapter when he's talking about people's abilities, effectively what he's talking about in the talk, people's ability to self-organize spontaneously, to uh, coordinate together, and to come up with meaningful, efficient responses to catastrophes, very often in the absence of real help from government. Now, Glenn's account of the uh, disaster in New Orleans starts effectively by saying that one of the big problems is a lot of the people who had initiative weren't around in the first place. They'd effectively gotten out while the going was good. Uh, quote, the citizens with skills, resources, and public spirit mostly evacuated, leaving the city occupied by those with none of these. Now, he also talks a little bit about the differences that we saw between different parts of the city. For example, we saw a lot of organization happening in New Orleans. We saw people are in, in the French Quarter of New Orleans. We saw people coming together, seeming to have the skills and the initiative to get things done. And he attributes this to communities, to, um, sort of, to communities which effectively are able to get this done. And he acknowledges that these communities are more likely to occur among rich people than among poor people. But it seems to me that there are some simpler explanations there. And these simpler explanations point to some 
long-lasting structural inequalities, which I don't think that these technologies are necessary, or these new um, sort of empowerments of the individual are necessarily going to change. Uh, and in particular, if you want to look at the French Quarter, one of the reasons why the French Quarter did so well was, first of all, it was, uh, it was relatively untouched by the floods. Rich people in New Orleans uh, uh, in the French Quarter and the Tourist Quarter district had access to uh, land which was uh, far less vulnerable vulnerable to flooding, and one can also reasonably suspect that a lot of the people who were in the French Quarter had access to a lot more resources than did the people in the other parts of New Orleans. And so what this suggests to me is that the people who are going to be um, able to take advantage of this properly are going to be, by and large, the people who have, um, who have some uh, background degree of, uh, of resources in the first place. In other words, in some ways, I think Glenn's book suggests, in the title and elsewhere, that this is a technology is a rising tide that, with some problems such as terrorism and so on, is probably going to end up lifting all boats. And this may be true, but it also may be true that if, in, instead what we're going to get is a rising tide that's going to lift some boats and going to lead to others drowning. Another interesting uh, uh, point where this arises is in Glenn's discussion of employment relationships. What he, what he says... It, and, and again, I have to say, he does go further than some people do in acknowledging that there may be problems with this, but he's talking about how it is that we have a society emerging which is basically going to be based upon self-employed individuals rather than on big hierarchies, rather than on the man in the grey flannel suit, and sort of soul-destroying corporate hierarchies which we've had in the past. And he says, in fairness, that some people might find problems with this, but he also says that his, pro his, his personal take on this from conversations with friends and so on who are, who are in this situation is that, by and large, people who are self-employed are better, they're happier off, than are people who are in big organizations. Now, I'm a social scientist, and we social scientists have a saying that uh, the plural of anecdote is not data. And what data we do have, and we do have some good data on this, suggests that the, that the rise in instability in employment relations is also uh, associated with a considerable rise in inequality. That we're seeing um, sort of the general rise in inequality in the United States. We're seeing furthermore, uh, according to Jacob Hacker's research, a massive increase in instability of incomes. And more generally, we're seeing transfer of risk from, from uh, corporate entities to individuals, very often individuals who aren't able to bear this uh, very successfully or very well. Now, I know this is something that the Cato Institute has some very pronounced views upon, which disagree with my own, but perhaps we can leave that under questions and answers. So, it seems to me that there are a lot of inequalities out there that aren't necessarily going to be addressed by this, that we see how markets and technology are not necessarily empowering all people in the same ways, but they're perhaps leaving some people behind. And the final point that I want to develop is that I also think that a second element of this is that there are hierarchies emerging within, uh, within these new technologies themselves. And again, this is something which Glenn, I think, doesn't devote enough attention to. So that, for example, in the blogosphere, we see how there are massive dispar disparities in influence and power among bloggers. Uh, we see on the top of the distribution, we see people like Glenn, who get an awful lot of readers, who get, uh, who get an awful lot of attention. We see a long tail of people at the very bottom of the distribution who sometimes may have indirect influence through people like Glenn or otherwise, but who by and large are um, sort of effectively um, sort of not in the same, uh, same sort of situation. Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing because I also think that hierarchy can be useful and can be important in ways that uh, Glenn doesn't discuss. And this is something, but this is something where I think that the kinds of limited hierarchies that we're seeing emerge in these um, spaces like the blogosphere may not necessarily be very good at accomplishing certain tasks that traditional hierarchies have been quite good at indeed. And here I'd like to refer people to a wonderful little essay by Stephen Berlin Johnson that I don't think has gotten enough attention. And what he talks about is the Dean campaign and how the Dean campaign went wrong. And the Dean campaign, of course, sought to take advantage of many of the forces that Glenn is talking about. You know, sort of thousands of volunteers coordinating with each other, using blogging, using uh, meetup.com, using all of these technologies in order to try and do the things that a conventional political campaign would do and to try and do them better. And, of course, the Dean campaign didn't succeed. 
And Johnson says that one of the reasons that it didn't is because these new technologies tend to empower the kind of complexity associated with slime molds in, in his description rather than the kinds of complexity associated with termite glands. Neither very attractive sounding uh, metaphors, but he has a point here. And the point goes something like this. If you look at slime molds, slime molds are cons uh, composed of one-celled organisms which basically group together when they face a certain threat. They're very good at, at uh, performing a single, uh, single activity and grouping together to perform that single activity in bulk. And you can see how uh, Dean's campaign was pretty good at that, at getting people to uh, raise funds to do these kinds of things. But when it comes to more complicated forms of organization to deal with changing environments, Dean's campaign did miserably badly at it. And this was one of the reasons why D Dean's campaign went down in flames after the infamous episode of the Dean Scream. It effectively wasn't able to adapt to a changing environment. So this suggests to me a more broad lesson. And if you look at blogs, you also see that blogs tend to be very good at certain kinds of things and rather poor at others. They're very, very good at organizing thousands and tens of thousands of people uh, together to screen blue murder, whether it be at Trent Lott, whether it be at uh, Dan Rother, whoever it is that they, uh, that they want to protest against. They're not so good at organizing long-term, coherent campaigns, which, is a really, uh, sort of, which really can have long-term consequences. They tend to have short attention spans. Certain kinds of boring jobs don't tend to get done because nobody necessarily wants to do them. And these are all the kinds of things that hierarchy can do well. And another good example, I think, is Wikipedia. We've seen how Wikipedia, as it's become more and more important, has been, become forced to introduce a greater and greater degree of hierarchy in order to stop certain individuals from effectively wrecking the common resource. So, in short, I think, what I, th what I think is missing from this account is taking power relations seriously. And this is not something that I think is at all unique to Glenn. I think there, there are versions of a certain kind of myth on both the left and the right of the blogosphere, which is that we can get away from power inequalities, we can get away from power relations into, into a situation in which they don't matter anymore. Left version of this myth is that the net roots are going to create some sort of a, uh, a real dynamic populist organization which is going to sweep away the dinosaurs of the Democratic Party and then sweep through politics in this country and change it forever. A right-wing version of this, I think, is that we're going to get all of these empowered citizen journalists who are going to manage to displace, or at the very least, limit the power radically of the big media to do the kinds of things that it has traditionally done in terms of setting the agenda for this country. Now, like all myths, I think that these myths have a grain of truth to them. There are important and interesting social phenomena, which in some ways do correspond to the kinds of things that the myths suggest, but I think that these myths are being pushed an awful lot further than the evidence would suggest they should and ought to be pushed. And I guess to close, um, and this is one final point that I'm probably running out of time, so I'll just say very quickly, I think that there's a final problem, which is that I suspect that many of these developments can in fact be co-opted by the powers that be. And when I read Glenn's book, I was re reminded of a book, I don't know whether he's read it, by uh, M Michael Peori and Charles Sable, which came out about 20-odd years ago, called The Second Industrial Divide. Because this has a lot of things in common with Glenn's, with Glenn's book. It's a book written by two lefties, but they're basically lefties who are predicting that new technologies are empowering small, agile firms who are going to cooperate together in decentralized networks and are going to lead to the end of the massive hierarchies and mass production that we've seen in the past. Now, Peori and Sable were wrong, and one of the main reasons I think that they were wrong is that many of these hierarchies proved to be an awful lot nimbler than they expected in adapting to new circumstances and in co-opting these new technologies, these new possibilities for production, and combining them with the kinds of things that hierarchies have always been able to do traditionally quite well. And I suspect that there's a real risk, there's a real possibility that this is going to happen with many of these developments as well. And with that, I leave it at that. Okay, the issue is joined. Uh, before we open it up uh, for question and answers, uh, I think we'll let uh, Glenn have a, a couple of minutes uh, to uh, react to what Henry has said, and then we'll uh, let you join in. You can just stay there. Uh, Henry actually raises a number of interesting points. Uh, I, I do want the record to reflect that he called me the John the Baptist of the nerds, I believe, uh, which I guess is better than being called a slime mold, so I'll take it. Uh, He's certainly right. Uh, I, I don't predict anything like an end to hierarchy, uh, only a change, and I think it's a substantial one. Uh, it, it, as always, it sort of depends on what your baseline is. 
Uh, if your baseline for a happy worker is a steel worker making a lot of money in 1965 under a secure union contract versus somebody running a business out of their home in 2005, uh, you can argue about which is better off. On the other hand, if your basis for comparison is somebody running a business out of their home in 2005 with a laid-off steel worker in 2005, uh, then I think the, the comparison is different. Uh, all, I think, uh, technological slash economic slash industrial co configurations are unstable as long as technology continues to change and society continues to change. And whatever looks well adapted at one time may well not be at another. And uh, people have different abilities as well and flourish well under different circumstances. The very kids who are in elementary school now being doped up on Ritalin because they have uh, explosive tempers and can't concentrate long enough would have been huge successes back during the Bronze Age uh, because back then having a short attention span meant that instead of examining a pretty rock while somebody snuck up behind you and hit you over the head, you got bored and you looked around and saw and pulled out your sword. And because you had an explosive temper, you were mad and you cut off their head. You were perfectly adapted for that world. You don't do so well now. Geeks didn't do so well in the Bronze Age for the most part. Now the technological constellation perhaps favors geeks a bit more. Uh, it was probably unfair in the Bronze Age. It's probably unfair now uh, that, uh, in a sense, that you don't get to pick which characteristics you're born with. Uh, the notion of the singularity is, I think, if I can just briefly mention, it has been called the rapture for nerds. Uh, and there is a characteristic of it uh, that's like that. The term as I use it, however, has more to do with its original meaning, uh, which is a point beyond which you can't really predict what the future is like. Uh, there are people like Ray Kurzweil who are very persuasive and predict what they think uh, even the post-singularity world will look like. I think it's hard to say. Uh, what I've tried to do in the book uh, is to take William Gibson's aphorism that the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, uh, and look at the places where it's already here and then imagine what it would look like if it were more evenly distributed. And uh, well, I'll, I'll let you read the book and judge how successful I was. Thank you. Okay, uh, questions? If uh, Raise your hand, I'll pick you and we'll have a mic come around and you can just give your name and affiliation and ask a question, uh, a brief one, and so we can give uh, our speakers here plenty of time to get their teeth into it. Right back there. Chris Grebe, is there any possibility that the blogosphere will be affected if they insist, as they are talking about, putting McLean Feingold over it? You know, the, um, the McCain-Feingold issue is a huge issue to bloggers. Uh, it's also an issue on which the law is somewhat unclear. Uh, as I understand it, they're now proposing legislation that would exempt us, but uh, it is a concern. There is a belief among a lot of people in the blogosphere that, in fact, uh, people don't like these unmediated conversations and the ability of the rabble to organize and make a stink about things. And I think that, uh, you know, the, the empire is likely to want to strike back. Uh, as for how far it will reach, I, I think it's, it's doomed to failure. The FEC is already a completely ineffective regulatory body. Uh, it, it typically issues its rulings long after campaigns are over. Uh, the sanctions are relatively minor. Uh, it's it's I, completely ineffective is too strong a phrase, but it, it's pretty weak. Uh, it has, I think, uh, no chance of having the resources or the political capital needed to try to go after millions of anonymous bloggers posting things. Uh, they, they might try to make an example out of somebody like me, uh, but uh, in terms of actually affecting political speech on the Internet, I, I just don't think they have the capacity. I don't, I don't, this is closer to Henry's field than mine, so perhaps uh, he's got further thoughts. I'm not an expert in American politics, so I'll defer. You on the aisle and then next to you. Well, I'm at, my question is to Mr. Farrell. Yeah, it's on. I mean, naturally, I, I'm just trying to understand your thesis here. Naturally, people who are outstanding or, or, or articulate are the ones who are going to make some headway on the Internet. I mean, who would want to listen to a blog that was written by George Bush, for example? I mean, you know, I, I, this doesn't make sense. I mean, are, are you saying that... Some common person who sits around and watches Roseanne and Oprah all day is the, is, should have an equal voice to someone who makes incisive comments about what happens in our society. I, I don't really understand why that's a, uh, relevant. That well, if I can respond, first of all, 
Uh, I'm sure that there, among the 29.8 million bloggers out there, there are a bunch of Roseanne and Oprah bloggers who I'm unfamiliar with. But the point I was trying to make was a little different from that. It wasn't that necessarily that people with certain personal characteristics tend to uh, being smart, funny, evocative, tend to uh, rise to the top of the blogosphere. It's that these people tend to have a certain social profile. They tend to be white. They tend to be upper middle class. They tend to have advanced college degrees. And these are by no means uh, characteristics that are, char that are uh, typical of the average American person. And so to some extent, it seems to me that the, uh, that, the, uh, that the people who successful bloggers very often most resemble are those elites who they're trying to displace. There doesn't seem to me to necessarily be all that much difference between uh, bloggers, such as indeed me myself. I'm a white, upper-middle-class male with an advanced, col advanced college degree and, say, somebody who's a journalist for the New York Times or a uh, political operative or whatever in terms of, of our backgrounds. So it seems to me that this is less a story about the ordinary people displacing the, uh, displacing the, uh, the powers that be as a story of one set of powers to be to some extent displacing another set, set of powers that be. Uh, David Kralik with the Manufacturer's Blog. Uh, question for both Henry and Glenn. Are you, uh, you both are bloggers, are you journalists? And uh, second part of the question is your thoughts on a journalistic shield law. Uh, I'm a journalist when I do journalism, which is sometimes. Um, I am a pundit when I do punditry, which is other times. I'm a movie reviewer when I review movies, which is occasionally. Uh, and I am a, I don't know what I am when I publish recipes, which I do now and then. Um, but, uh, you know, although, you know, I, I say publishing recipes isn't journalism, and yet if you open every daily newspaper in the country, you'll probably find recipes, and you'll probably find movie reviews, and you'll find punditry, and they probably consider all of that to be journalism. Uh, so I, I'm, or, or at least somewhat. Uh, but I think you're a journalist when you do journalism. I think it's an activity, not a profession. Um, and I think that uh, I tend not to favor shield laws, at least if they are based on where your paycheck comes from rather than what you're doing. Uh, I think that um, if we're worried about subpoenas and the like chilling free speech, then we ought to be worried about it chilling free speech by everybody, not just free speech by people who work for big media corporations. Uh, and, and that's my take on it. Um, I guess I don't consider myself to be a journalist at all. Uh, insofar as I'm anything, I'm a sort of public intellectual on the cheap. Uh, my take on the journalism shield law, uh, this is something, again, as I say, I'm not a specialist in American politics. What American politics I know, I know indirectly through uh, studying the blogosphere and how it impacts the, this. My understanding is, and this is probably a very vague, uh, vague answer, you know, there very clearly are a set of categories which American law is based on when it comes to figuring out how journalists and the electoral process mix with each other. These categories seem to be uh, in the process of being exploded at the moment by the introduction blogs. How this is going to, uh, how this is going to uh, turn out in the end of the day, I have no idea. My, get, my best guess is that there probably is going to be sooner or later some re-regulation of blogs, which will see many bloggers kicking and screaming. But, uh, but that's just a guess, to be perfectly honest, rather than a hard and fast prediction. Let's see. I, um, I have a question. Um, the, the, I'm Michael Barone from US News, old media uh, <laughs> blogger also. Um, isn't part of the success of the blogosphere, Glenn, because um, it's taken on what turn out to be second-rate professions and hierarchies. I'm speaking of my own profession in particular, the press, um, which, uh, you know, is of a pretty shoddy intellectual quality with some exceptions. Uh, you know, compare the writing on polling in the New York Times to what you get from mysterypollster.com, who is David Blumenthal, who's a Democratic pollster, uh, shares the same political views as Adam Nagorny, but he gets, he actually knows what he's talking about and writes uh, honestly and so forth. Uh, and I would say to Henry, it sounds like you're sort of complaining that, the, you know, the bottom 20 percent doesn't get to participate. Well, you know, they, they can participate in this country. The problem is they're just not very competent to do most things. They can't qualify for the U.S. military service, for example. Uh, you know, that's a whole other problem. And as far as white people being atypical of America, wrong. 
White people are the typical Americans. If you're looking at the numbers, of course, a lot of us who are classified as white now have ethnic, ethnic backgrounds which were not classified as white 100 years ago, but that's another story. Any take? Well, you know, I, I think there's a, a love-hate relationship between the blogosphere and journalism, and I think the reason why bloggers blog about journalism so much is because we like it and find it interesting. I didn't blog about the Oscars last night, for example, because I was sure I would find them intolerable. And while I was sure I would have found plenty to criticize had I subjected myself to them, it just wasn't worth the pain. Uh, and I don't feel that way about journalism, so I must like it. Uh, and I do. Uh, but, in fact, uh, just like the fanboys who get mad when they make obvious mistakes in Star Trek episodes, uh, because we like it, we, we get irritated when they don't do it well. Uh, and uh, certainly, I think the profession of journalism, uh, since it started thinking of itself as a profession, in fact, uh, or a priesthood, uh, has become somewhat insular and indeed somewhat like the Hollywood that I gather was on display at the Oscars last night, uh, a sense that it's there to inform the hoi polloi, uh, the, the lesser people, and, uh, and not merely to inform but to enlighten and provide moral instruction to the rest of us. And I think that's something that bloggers don't like, and I think that the blogosphere has, has responded to that uh, to a substantial degree. Uh, quick response. I didn't say white people. I said white upper-middle-class males with advanced uh, college degrees. I don't know off the top of my head what percentage of the, this is of the population. My guess is that it can't be higher than 3, three to 4% of the population. And if a majority of bloggers come from this, this suggests that bloggers are not, in that sense, ordinary people. It's a very straightforward point. I don't see that it's even, uh, not only do I not see how it's an objectionable point, I don't see how it's a point which anybody who studies the stats in this can actually, uh, can actually uh, in principle, object to. Right down here in the front. Gabriel Goldberg, I have a question for Professor Reynolds regarding two sectors, two industries where the trend seems to be going in the other direction. One is Internet service providers, ISPs, and the other is telephone companies, where there's reconsolidation in the telephone industry. What's now called AT&T seems to be gobbling everything else up. In the Internet industry, local, small, boutique ISPs are having a harder and harder time as broadband becomes more available, more common, and as it becomes less economically viable to use the wires running into people's houses, uh, there's not enough margin for them to mark up what they have to pay the phone companies. Obviously, two examples doesn't disprove the thesis, but I'm, I'm curious what your, what your feeling is in what's going on right now and what the long-term outlook is for competitive telecommunications and competitive Internet service offerings. Yeah, on the AT&T thing, I'm quite bemused because uh, in, in an earlier phase of my life, I actually was a telecommunications lawyer here in Washington. I worked for Dewey Ballantyne, and uh, one of the things I did was the AT&T divestiture. And uh, I used to go to those hearings, there'd be like 500 lawyers in Judge Green's court, and I'd go back to the office. I was representing AT&T in court today. It sounded very impressive. Uh, but... Uh, but you know, it's funny because it was all be about being broken up, and it is. It's sort of coming back together. I, I don't know whether that disproves my point uh, because, in fact, what we may be finding is that uh, once you squeezed the sort of Dilbert-style organizational inefficiencies out of the old Bell system, it may be that, in fact, the technology favors uh, large entities, that this is still an area where the minimum efficient scale is quite large uh, and where uh, efficiency increases uh, as you scale up to a substantial degree, in which case fine. You know, uh, what I would say is that as to sort of how we ought to look at those things normatively, I would like to see them look like eBay, that is uh, providing services that empower people to do their own thing uh, rather than uh, look like some sort of top-down hierarchy that, that uh, tells you what to do or offers you only a limited palette of choices. Uh, and one move that I have not followed very closely but have been somewhat aware of uh, is the what, what people are calling the two-tier internet, which is where some of the carriers are actually trying to uh, reconfigure things so that they can give people uh, better service in exchange for more money. And, and I I, I'm vigorously opposed to that idea because I think that the genius of the Internet is that it's a completely open system uh, that allows people to do their own thing and see if it works. And a system in which uh, you get substandard service unless you're Yahoo or Google strikes me as a, as a terrible idea. That's my take.
Hi, uh, Will Wilkinson from the Cato Institute. Uh, I wanted to run something by the two of you. The stories that you were both telling sounded pretty consistent to me, and in, 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 and uh, which which uh, and that story I think uh, begs another question that I'd like to ask you. So the story I was hearing from Glenn is that we went through this phase where there was a mass industrial society that produced uh, you know all sorts of stuff, and basically that broke society down into two classes. There's like a working class and a managerial class. Now we've had this big shift in technology. And what we see is uh, new technologies that really uh, increase the efficiencies of the managerial class and sort of marginalize the human capital that the working class has. And therefore, you see in increasing inequalities because the efficiencies from the new technologies mostly accrue to the people with the human capital consistent with the new technologies. And then the working class is left without a skill set that allows them to take advantage of the new technologies. So the, the, the question, and I think both of those ideas are, are consistent. The, the question then is what uh, can the, the new technologies actually do to enhance the uh, human capital of the people who uh, aren't as well suited to take advantage of new technologies? What can those technologies do to enhance their human capital and to actually empower everybody rather than just the nerds? Well, I sort of have a chapter on that, actually, uh, conveniently enough. Uh, uh, although I, I have to say it's more aspirational than uh, empirical at the moment. And I look at the role that uh, video and computer games have played in teaching people a lot of things that they don't learn in school and speculate that you could use these to, to educate people in a lot of other ways. And indeed, my uh, if you've ever used The Sims 2 and looked at it, it's actually a very powerful teaching tool uh, in a lot of ways. And I imagine that you could uh, accomplish a lot of things that right now aren't being accomplished very well at all uh, that way and that there might even be a market to support it. Uh, but uh, that's, as I say, aspirational. We're certainly not there yet. Um, off the top of my head, I don't have any very good suggestions to make here. I will say that this is something where the, the social scientific work, the statistics, they're a little ambiguous, but insofar as we can tell, uh, uh, insofar as there seems to be a consensus, it is that these gaps are widening rather than disappearing over time, which would suggest um, sort of perhaps some grounds for pessimism as to how this is actually going to play out. There may be ways in which this can be improved, but the, I think there are two problems here. One is the most obvious one, which is simple access to this technology, which tends to be uh, very differentially uh, distributed so that uh, people on lower incomes, uh, uh, black people tend to be less likely to have access to the internet, for example, at home, which is where much of the actual learning takes place. And the second problem is that many of these technologies are actually uh, pretty, they're much more difficult to use than might appear to somebody um, somebody who's um, sort of who's accustomed to using them. So that, for example, my co-blogger Esther Hargitay had done a lot of very interesting research about the ways in which people use search engines, and it turns out that it's an awful lot more di difficult for people to use Google than might appear to somebody uh, somebody from a uh, you know from from a, a background where they've grown up effectively using search engines as part of their day to day um, part of their day to day existence. I just want to pick up on something that uh, that I think you hint at in the book. And you mentioned today that personal characteristics, uh, their cash value changes uh, over time. Uh, and it's at least conceivable uh, that this current sort of ascendancy of the nerds is uh, is a temporary phase and that, in fact, it's it, it applies to this kind of transition between mass industrialism and the singularity, uh, but that uh, these events are actually pushing towards the the liquidation of the nerd's ascendancy. That <laughs> once you get nanotech and... Uh, and uh, Are you saying the liquidation of the nerd ascendancy? ascendancy. I thought you were yeah. saying the nerds there. You'd be worried for a moment. No, not, nothing that drastic. Uh, but uh, once you get nanotech where everything is basically for free, uh, and once you have incredible information technology where all of uh, the nerd's gifts at abstract reasoning are done much more cheaply uh, by machines, uh, you end up perhaps in a service economy where the people who really uh, make the big bucks are people who are really nice and, and provide uh, uh, exquisite and ornate and, and memorable service experiences, which may not be nerds. Uh, so uh, you did mention that kind yeah, of thing actually, in your book. Actually, I suggest that, uh, that the jobs that are most likely to survive a technological revolution are things like prostitution uh, and lawyering, uh, <laughs> which uh, whatever else they have in common. Uh, yeah, I, I think that. I mean, I, I think that 
it cuts a number of ways. We, we often hear this inequality, and, and Michael Lent had an article on this and how you know, the working people are being left behind, although one of my colleagues said, I found that article pretty persuasive until I saw my electrician's house. Uh, the, it's possible that it goes the other way, in fact, that, uh, that those manual skills are the ones that are harder to outsource to Bangalore. You, know, you can get your legal work done even in Bangalore now, but you can't get your toilet fixed that way. And uh, that, in fact, uh, you know, the trend may reverse. A couple more questions right here. My name is Richard Squires from Delphi Film. Uh, I'm an independent film producer, and in that sense, consider myself one of the Davids who's attempting to take on the Goliaths of the Hollywood film industry. And um, one of the reasons that we feel emboldened uh, to take on this kind of um, objective it's because it appears that there's beginning to be a sea change in advertising and marketing in which uh, web blogs and um, consumer reviews in places like Netflix and Amazon.com are beginning to supersede uh, conventional multi-million dollar advertising and marketing budgets. And I wonder if both of you could comment on whether or not you think that there is actually um, a significant trend in this direction towards the uh, the um, elimination, really, of whole industries in advertising and marketing uh, to be replaced by word of mouth. I hate to talk about the elimination of things because you know people talk about things going away, and what often happens is they actually continue at similar levels. It's just other things grow faster. Uh, but you definitely have a situation now where. Uh, stuff without a big advertising budget has a better shot at getting eyeballs and getting attention through word of mouth and through Amazon recommendations and things like that. And you can really see the Amazon recommendation uh, thing affect the rankings of related things. When, you know, when one book rises, other stuff gets dragged along with it uh, and such. Uh, and there's probably some clever ways to game that. Uh, but I think that um, I, I think you can make too much of that. And, and the one thing uh, which maybe echoes Henry's point a little bit is people have to realize that there will never be more than 10% of the members of an industry in the top 10% of the industry, no matter what your technological paradigm is. You know, there's always this terrible moment we have in law teaching when you know, the students walk in, and at the beginning of the year, they all think they're going to be in the top 10%, and then after the grades come out for the first semester, only 10% of them are in the top 10%. Uh, and with technological revolutions, you get that sometimes, too. They, they may open things up. They may throw away a lot of the old rules. They may provide a lot of new opportunities. But at the end of the day, only 10% are going to be in the top 10%. And, and that is, uh, is just the way it is. I should say Chris Anderson's uh, forthcoming book, The Long Tail, suggests that the influence and importance of the bottom 10% is a lot bigger than we tend to think. Uh, and that's not a thesis I'm prepared to defend here today in this amount of time, but I, I just wanted to mention it. Uh, I think we're going to take one more uh, right down here. Thank you. My name is James Graver, and I would like to ask you about some instances where the empire strikes back, um, and maybe the, the empire and the army of Davids are already in a mortal combat. And I think the best example of that is the movie and uh, music industry against the sharing uh, hackers, if you or whatever you call them. Yeah, I, you know, there are two things going on with the movie and music industry's campaigns. Uh, the short-term agenda, which I think is totally sincere on their part, uh, is, is to cut down on the illegal copying of files uh, and even the legal copying of files to the extent they can do so via digital rights management or interorum effects. Uh, but the other agenda, which they quite clearly have, is to try to slow the appearance of alternative distribution networks that they don't control, because they're afraid if there are alternative distribution networks that they don't control, they will distribute products that they don't control, like those independent films and things like that. Uh, because in, for example, a sort of peer-to-peer, bit-torrent kind of environment, uh, massive distribution of stuff uh, with very small amounts of resources becomes even easier. And there's no question that they are concerned about that. Uh, the tools for competing with them have gotten very cheap. Uh, their biggest competitive advantage obviously isn't talent. I mean, just go listen to a few CDs at random. Uh, it, it has more to do with promotion and distribution. And, uh, and that, in fact, 
record companies and motion picture companies are in some sense really uh, mostly in the business of promotion and distribution and sort of venture capital financing of things they think they can promote and distribute uh, rather than producing the actual product. So they're, I think they're very much trying to forestall uh, the development of these alternative distribution networks uh, that would make it easier to compete with them. Uh, and they've had some success. I'd like to, I guess, respond to the question in a slightly broader way and to leave, I guess, this primarily libertarian audience with a thought to ponder on, which is that to the extent that these technologies really succeed, we may end up seeing an eclipse of markets. And here, what I mean to say by this is that what these technologies, and this is one place where I do agree with Glenn, that there is this fantastic new set of abilities for people to produce, to reproduce, to remix, which, uh, you know, remix um, cultural commodities and other commodities, which just didn't exist before, and that this is going to have important social consequences. What is not so clear necessarily is that there's going to be a market for a lot of this stuff. Again, the blogosphere is a great example. There are a couple of hundred bloggers, perhaps, at the very most, it's an extraordinarily generous estimate, who make a living wage from it. There are another maybe thousand, couple of thousand, who make beer money. And then there are millions of people who make absolutely nothing from this whatsoever. They're just engaged in exchange for, for, the, for the sake of exchange in and of itself. And this is, I think, a point that Jochai Benkler makes very well in a forthcoming book, that what we're seeing is uh, not necessarily an empowerment of markets, but rather an empowerment of the ability of people to produce, to recommend things that they like to each other, without working through the market mechanism. So it's something which I think will be very interesting for libertarians to figure out. This is not the state, this is not market, this is not community, it's something in between. Also something interesting for us lefties to figure out, and I don't think that we've done a very good job. And a final thought is that, as I say, I don't think that there's much in the way of a business model for blogging. Uh, uh, and I think some of the problems that pajama media, uh, Pajamas Media has been going through illustrates how difficult it is to come up with ways to really make money consistently from this. And what I suspect we're going to see is, apart from a few small blogging empires, we're going to see, uh, uh, we're going to see the, um, the way in which people can make money from blogging is by effectively astroturf blogs of one sort or another selling their opinions on the open marketplace and I suspect we're going to see a considerable growth industry of that happening both, uh, you know, the most obviously associated with the next congressional elections but more generally people blogging and effectively being uh, paid, paid guns for this or that viewpoint in the marketplace of ideas. Let me just point out in closing that, uh, that libertarians celebrate and even defend uh, uh, consenting acts between uh, – uh, or voluntary acts between consenting adults even when money doesn't change hands. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> including uh, this uh, event today and the conversation to follow. So I invite all of you uh, to uh, head upstairs for sandwiches and informal conversation. Um, I, there are books out for sale outside right now. They may move upstairs to facilitate signing. I don't know, but you'll find out. Uh, I would like to thank Glenn and Henry for uh, uh, their uh, insightful comments and all of you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.